0: Hello. Welcome to Chinwag. Thank God, the guitar resonated when I did that. got a guitar down <laughs> at the bottom here. If I go, hello, the guitar resonates, because it's a resonator. Welcome. You can to, almost hear the crowd. You can almost <laughs> hear the crowd, the roar of the crowd, the smell of the grease pen. Um, welcome to the Chinwag with me, your ever genial host, Mike Laverick. Um, with me today, I'm joined by a chap called Duncan James, who... Um, how did this sort of thing come about? Um, I came across a kind of internal circulator, circulator, Circu- circular, uh, saying, hey, we've had this S B contest and this guy's won it and let everybody just like go mental about this. So I had a look at it and go, I recognize that guy. <laughs> and it turned out that I'd, uh, I'd met Duncan, I've met you a couple of times at, at various Vmugs. I forget which ones. And of course, I follow you on Twitter. So... Uh, and then it just sort of happened, I saw your name on Twitter and went, chinwag with this guy. Um, but um, anyway, I'm rambling on too much. Duncan, introduce yourself. Yeah, OK. Um, tell us about this SMB contest and why it is that you, you won it.
1: OK, uh, yeah, so I'm Duncan James. I work for a law firm based in Leeds, which is in the UK. I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, to be honest, uh, especially in virtualization and probably more so at the minute, more end user computing. Um, so I think I've joked with you a few times, Mike. That I've been doing virtualization for f- fifteen years. Mm. Well, it's true to some extent, but it's actually virtual musical instruments that I've been using for fifteen <laughs> years. So virtual musicals. Um Yeah. So there was no garage band back then. Um, back then, it was more fruity loops and Cubase. All right. I uh, remember
0: Cubase actually. I remember oh, okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's still going strong. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, what was this? Uh, what was this SMB contest that you that you won?
1: Yeah, it was just by chance that I, I saw it. To be honest, on the VMware SMB blog, mm. um, it was just two hundred words of how you could use a VMware project in your business, and I had a good think about it. And I thought, well, everyone's going to go for maybe View or vSphere. So I thought, let's think outside the box, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, Been working at a law firm. um, People send documents all over the place all the time, and I'd saw that Project Octopus was out at the time. It's a really good name, Octopus. They should have kept it. Yeah, because
0: it's now Horizon Data. Horizon Data. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's all built into Workspace. Um, And if you actually, when you're actually looking up, looking at the VM loading up, you can still see this Octopus plastered all over the VM still. All right. So. Either that's laziness, or it's just a heritage to the to a really good name.
0: <laughs> so it was all about a usage case for you. I mean, in case people don't know, it's kind of I hate hate it when people do this. It's Dropbox for the enterprise. So like everything is a retail thing, and then add for the enterprise to the It's like Pandora yeah. for the enterprise. It's,
1: it's, it's kind of how, how do you deal with the the you know the um, corporate Dropbox problem, if you like. Mm. Um, I'm often pondering what everybody else is doing. Um, I've got no idea what people are doing.
0: <laughs> using Dropbox yeah. and exposing themselves to all sorts of vulnerabilities, and not even aware that it's happening. Yeah. so my yeah, question, That's it. Uh, There's a video of you talking about this uh, this uh, prize, which is very slickly delivered. What I want to know is how many times did you have to go through that video before you managed to get the pitch? Exactly. Which one was
1: it? it? The one you watched recently? Yeah. Um. Not too many times.
0: <laughs> oh, he's keeping his—he's keeping a his few video, trade secrets. Yeah, he's keeping his video and acting abilities under wraps. So, I mean, I guess that kind of leads us very well to our first question. As people know, there's a little bit of email exchange between me and the the Chin Waggy and the Chinwago. thats the way to put it—and I've got like a little bulleted list of of those topics. Uh, but it does lead on very nicely to talk about workspace. And we were—I was saying offline. Um, before I joined VMware, I was working with the previous incarnation of it, which was called Horizon Application Manager, or HAM, or Vham I like the idea of virtual ham, virtual meat, but anyway, um, virtual sandwiches. Um, but it's it, it's changed its name. Um, at the time, I think it was just two virtual appliances: the connector and the kind of service front end. But when I yeah. last when I looked at the new workspace iteration, it's now like three or four virtual appliances. It's actually it's actually now.
1: Now five, is it five? Um, S- and it comes as a V app as well, yes. so uh, you can need B center to deploy it first of all.
0: So I mean, this I, I know what the features are because I, I sort of read the announcements, but I've not touched the thing in anger because where I am is in the the cloud um, side of the business, not in the EUC side of the business. So if I'm going to do any EUC work, I have to kind of. Cleverly slip it in amongst cloud work. So the last time I did anything that was EUC related was using vShield Edge Gateway as the load balancer and as the entry point into view, rather than using, you know, I don't know, F5 Big IP, which is probably what I did for the book. But um, tell us about your experiences of using Horizon Application Manager as, you know, the setup, things that work for you, gotchas. Just tell us about your experiences, really.
1: Yeah, so um, you deploy it just as you would do uh, any other kind of virtual appliance, just like vCenter Server or uh, vCenter Ops. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's five VMs. Um, the initial VM is called the configurator. And when you power that on, the first thing it does is uh, sort of a series of checks. So you've, you've, hopefully by this stage, you've already put in the IP addresses for the other um, virtual machines. Um, so the configurator, the data, and the service. Um, It does a DNS and a reverse DNS checkup. Uh, It talks to vCenter, it checks some SMTP settings, and does a little bit of an initial certificate check. Mm -hmm. Um, It then does a few snapshots of itself, and it continues on its way in its little factory until it's finished doing its initial config, and hopefully, by the end of that, there's a nice big kind of we're-ready-to-go message. And then you can go onto a web browser and do some more config where perhaps you're going to do an LDAP bind, import some users from AD, uh, give those users access to services like Horizon Data. Um, So, not too much time, to be honest, to get up and going. Um, If it does go horribly wrong, you don't get those IPs in, then it pretty much tells you there's a big error. You need to go and talk to VMware support.
0: Do you need. IP pools set up to do the IP configuration.
1: Yeah, you you do indeed. That's a bit of a top tip. Um, There's a lot of blog uh, entries out there about what you actually need to put in. Um, So I I can't remember the guys. I think it's Jonathan Frappier, I think it is. And he's got basically a blog post on what IP settings to put in, that kind of thing. I
0: guess what Um, IP you put in whatever IP, if it's going to speak to Virtual Center, it's got to be on your management network, but it's also yeah. got to be, part of it. Has got to be accessible to the end users and your end users never meet your management network. So I guess that's yeah. where things get interesting from a patching perspective, which port groups you put each of the different yeah. nodes on. So did you find that straightforward or was it a little bit tricky?
1: Um, well, to be honest, I was on the beta for Octopus and then I was also on the beta for um, Ryzen Workspace. So between the beta and the GA, they didn't actually, you didn't actually need to put IP pools in. So that kind of came as a shock when I put the real version on. It was like, oh, this isn't working now, but it was working on that version. So what have I done differently? Because I've documented everything. And that can, I guess that's the most important thing, get everything documented and at least you can work your way through it and see perhaps where you've gone wrong.
0: I think the, the funny thing about IP pools um, is some of the virtual appliances don't require them and some of the virtual appliances do. And I don't know whether internally there's ever been a policy or a standard to say whether you should or should not use IP pools because outside of virtual appliances, they're not really used that much in my experience in production environments. You can see the advantage obviously with virtual appliances because you wanna IP them, bring them up, they all speak to each other. Um, I remember on the beta for, vSphere replication, um, back when it was called host-based replication, HBL, the, um, the beta had the IP pools requirement in it. And a lot of us on the beta program were like, oh, why do we have to use this? We don't like this. Um, and uh, somebody said to me at, at VMware, well, sometimes it just happens by accident because the developer who built the appliance, when they export it through uh, Studio, if they've used IP pools, that just gets captured as part of the appliance. And they might not okay. even think of or, or the consequences of that. for. Whereas if the developer hasn't used IP pools, and then they export that to through Studio, then they're not included. But I think I once mm. discovered that you can actually go through one of those wizards, bung in a bogus IP address, and then before you power on the appliance, actually just remove the IP pool requirement, and it will power up. And if it does that, then what it will do is do a DHCP, or wait until you give it a static IP address. But I'm not sure whether that is a consistent experience across all the various appliances that we have, but perhaps a bit dangerous for me to say this, but I sometimes think it's an accident whether the IP pools requirement is there or not, you know.
1: it like an evolution of a, a VM, you know, or a V-app, who knows? Yeah, it's... yeah,
0: I guess, I mean, I think what I think is interesting about IP pools, I didn't, didn't intend this to be a discussion about IP pools, but I've on that one is, when you look at something like vCloud Director, you can't configure the thing without making IP pools and VMs come up, they get a static IP address from a static pool. So it's like DHCP, but it's static rather than you know just being leased down. So it's kind of weird in some parts of the architecture for Cloud Director, IP pools is kind of mandatory, but in vSphere it's a kind of take it or leave it kind of feature. nobody says, you know, you're, your life is somehow not complete if you don't have IP pools in vSphere. It's it's not something that people tend to think about too much. But you mentioned these. There's five different roles. Could you teach Mike Maverick? What what are those different roles there for? So there's the configurator. What are the other? Yep. Yeah, so
1: um, so the configurator is pretty much almost like a dumb VM. Really, it's just it's just there to be actually dishing out the roles and uh, making sure they can all talk to each other and that sort of thing. Um, the data ones, obviously, the files. Okay, um, so we've got service. I think everyone connects to the service one. Is that right? Yeah, and
0: then the, it's the connector, the one that goes to ADs. Oh no, sorry,
1: everyone. Sorry, no, everyone actually connects to the connector one. And
0: then it's yeah, I always got those yeah, two the way around when it was yeah, Horizon yeah. Application Manager. Alright.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I mean, and um, I'm missing one. What am I missing? Answers on a postcard. Answers on a postcard. (laughs) So
0: for my money, there's sort of three main things that you can do with this, and maybe I'm wrong on it. There's the the SAML-based applications, the things that like Salesforce that people register for. You can register thin apps with that UI. I mean, I use that every day internally. I log in Horizon, I select the apps I want to use. Then there's the, the data component, and then there's the ability to advertise a virtual desktop in Workspace. Is that right? There's three main things you can offer up from the service or is there a fourth or fifth that I'm
1: missing? Um, the best way of describing it is, is like a, a telephone switchboard, to be honest, huh? um, for workspace, because um, it gives you access to either web apps, whether um, they're external, you've got your thin apps uh, and the data stuff as well. And it, it tends to be a kind of rule based system so that if you're inside the corporate LAN, it's going to give you more stuff. And if you're outside the corporate LAN, it's going to give you less, that sort of thing. There's you know, the view desktops as well. So it's kind of like your one-stop shop uh, for accessing um, services and data, to be honest.
0: So, I mean, on the kind of application side of things, do you have many apps registered for SAML and OAuth? This is the, the, the protocol that allows you to authenticate without passing on your... AD credentials, but automatically enrolling you in Google Apps or automatically enrolling you in Salesforce. Do
1: you have many yeah, those um, set up? Um, I mean, it's, ours is still in testing, to be honest, um, but the benefit for it is when someone leaves the firm. So th- there's that many different web apps now that people get subscribed to. You really want them all shutting down when someone leaves, not trying to scrabble through a, a spreadsheet or something that someone might have created. Um, it's kind of almost it's out of control as soon as you've subscribed to someone to something external you know it's difficult to to manage plus, maybe plus you may, don't want to manage it.
0: Plus you may be paying for that service as well.
1: Yeah yeah, yeah that's it so there's like a chargeback as well so it's it's nice to actually have a I'm not going to say that single pane of glass word. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You can say it it jokingly. (laughs) Actually, there was somebody on the podcast the other day with John that, that said single pane of glass at least three or four times, and I was like this. I had my fist in my mouth trying not to say anything, because unless you warn somebody about it up front, if they then say single pane of glass and I go... Then, then they're going to get a bit upset. So you do have to sort of warn people up front. To be honest,
1: I did plan to get that in this uh, wag, So I'm glad I got it in there. Well,
0: actually, what what I should have is a prize for the worst kind of subtle way that's the term "single pane." Yeah, 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 like, that'd be good. I'm looking out my window, and you could say it's a single pane of glass. bum <laughs> bum. So, um, I was gonna maybe listen- you could win
1: a competition on that
0: i would tell one thing I liked about um, Horizon Application Manager when it was that iteration was I was getting into ThinApp and just at that point of finishing up the book um, ThinApp Factory had come out uh, which builds ThinApps for you on demand but somebody had put together a JSON RSS feed that would pull down like 150 of the most popular free apps and then build off all those ThinApps for you but you could actually rig... ThinApp Factory to Horizon. So once all the applications have been built by ThinApp Factory, they start to appear in your inventory in oh, Horizon, and you just go uh, add that one to this group and so on. And it, it showed like the real power of being able to to just automatically build applications because. I think prior to something like Thin App Factory, most people who are building, say, Thin Apps or any virtualized application, you have your clean machine, you take a snapshot of it, you install your software, you run the scanner, yada, yada. I'm having to do that for every single blasted application in the enterprise. Even if you cut down the 1,000 apps that you think you have to the 50 apps that really get used in the environment, as to all the other 950 that are you know, barely use. Even that is a pain in the rear. And, you know, if you're trying to keep a particular piece of software that frequently updates, once you've built the thing, it's already out of date because some buggers released update 26 of whatever the software is, if you get the hint, without mentioning mentioning Java. Oh, oh. Oh. (laughs) Oh, God, every week there's a bloody Java security update that I see pop-ups for. But anyway, less about that are you d- using any of the thin app side of things for it the more kind of internally hosted apps
1: uh to be honest it's all just in the lab to be honest mm. uh, and now the uh now the v expert licenses have come through today fantastic yeah uh you can crack on with that now
0: so um what I'm, i guess maybe i should have asked a more straightforward question which is out of those three things desktops apps internal external and uh um the data Mm. Which is the one you want out of those trades? You want all of them, or do you just want one of them?
1: Yeah, the the primary use is the data. To be honest, mm. um, because a law firm has got just so many documents that are trying to get it out, um, it's it's the bread and butter. To be honest, so.
0: So, did you look at any other alternatives to uh, Horizon Data, and what made you choose Horizon Data in the end?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there's lots of different versions. Every every week, there's a different... Someone trying to sell the same there sort is of thing.
0: There. It's like a... <laughs> word Dropbox for the Enterprise. <sighs> yeah. So what, what, what made you go the VMware route rather than somewhere else? What put you off? Or... Uh,
1: so perhaps it's the competition. Um <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think I've learned quite a bit about the products over the last uh, six months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely some improvements I'd like to see on there. Um, so they can sort of catch up with other competitors Um, specifically there's um, an Outlook plugin which should be really good for us because um, emails are de facto standard for sharing documents for lawyers Mm -hmm. Um, my user base they're always going to want to send large PDFs out no matter what I tell them they're gonna try and whack on a hundred hundred meg PDF or something like that because it's got to go out Um, there's a lot of pressure so what I really want an Outlook plugin to do is to analyze the attachment and say, whoa, 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 that's too big. How about I drop it into Horizon Data and I replace it with a hyperlink so the person on the other end can then download it. And it's kind of seamless and it's it's automated. So um, I'm hoping that will be in the next release.
0: Because mm. I, I we both do this. There are some things that I can email to somebody because they're small enough and it's just a one-off. There are some files that I've got which are quite big and every other week somebody's asking usually a presentation that I've done at a VMUG. Can I see your PowerPoint? Mm. So I've ended up on Dropbox, because it's, you know, anybody's on it. Um, mm. to I've opened up a Dropbox folder with VMUG leaders and with all the presentations, even the ones I haven't done at a VMUG, and I just keep on inviting them to that folder. So that's the way I kinda handle it. But I guess we're asking our users to do a lot to Constantly think, do I need to send this? Is it, am I always going to be sending this? Can I not yeah, be just yeah. on, a, on a shared location where I could just point to the link? So maybe, like you were saying, the plugin to, you know.
1: They uh, tend to be unique documents, to be honest. Um,
0: associated with because, a particular case, I imagine.
1: Yeah, and it changes all the time. There might be, you know, 10 different versions in a day. Mm-hmm.
0: And I get, I mean, as I understand it, you can back the store for. Uh, horizon data with what? A virtual disk or an RDM that points to a LUN that is on your sat yeah. array, or is it
1: obviously- We just a... use, we just use uh, yeah, VMDKs at the minute. Um, we're, we're not that big for using anything bigger, to be honest. Uh, and a lot of the times it's just to get stuff out. Um, so it fits that bill, to be honest.
0: Mm. I mean, I'm tempted to run it internally having a, an internal version of it, because I've got um, an old two terabyte NAS on my network, which I could make into a sort of Dropbox style location, but have it done internally, and use that as a kind of the de facto place where I put all my stuff. I mean, it's it's mounted in, in Finder, and I can share things that way, but what I like is the sort of synchronization that you get with these sorts of file utilities. So that's a question. I don't know, does Horizon Data, do that kind of sync to my local machine. So
1: yeah, there's there's a yeah. yeah. I mean there's a there's a plug-in which sits on your, your Mac or Windows device, and mm. it's it's literally like, just like Dropbox really. Um, it monitors the share and um, it syncs it all up.
0: Yeah, I mean I've got that on my Mac for our internal one. The only thing that sort of puts me off using it internally is ours is backed by an RSA. So every time I power on my Mac I've got to uh, bring up the RS RSI uh, ID type in my mm. username and RSCD in it and then it works for the time mm. my Mac is up. The, the problem is is that often the people I'm wanting to share with is it's external people and mm. um, I just want to be at uh, Dropbox seems to be pretty much the uniform for for retail people, you know. Mm. So if you're sharing with external people, I must admit you must be able with uh, Horizon Data to share with people who aren't trusted, who aren't part of your.
1: Yeah, own. you can have third-party people. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I mean, maybe I should should do that, but nothing. I mean, I think the difference for me is a lot of what I'm sharing is my own presentations. They're not VMware corporate decks where I might want to mm. be a bit more cautious about them getting out on the wild. A lot of the stuff is just what I've written myself. Anyway, I should stop talking about my use of Dropbox. I'm hardly doing a good job of advertising the power of Verizon data. So um, the other thing that sort of came up in our like email exchange was your use of left-hand VSA in production. Now, when I saw that, I was like, whoa, very interested. Mainly because I've used the left-hand VSA, which is now the the, uh, thrillingly entitled HP 6...
1: it was Store Virtual. Store
0: Virtual doesn't it have a product number 6000 or something like
1: that. Um, I, I, can't, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's good old left hand to me. It's a <laughs>
0: snappy little name there HP 645 513 <laughs> b you know. Give it a product number and then everybody goes to sleep. Because I first started using that VSA for the first SRM book. I had some dumb, stupid storage with the left hand VSA, two of them running in London and Reading later. New York and New Jersey. I went all American and Atlanticized in the second edition, and without that VSA, I would not have written the first SRM book because I had no storage to do replication, and there was no vSphere replication back there either. So I would have been kind of hassled. But I've always wondered whether people actually used it in prod, the real world. <laughs> and um, I must admit, I've I was imp- I was how to say surprised, impressed with its performance despite the fact that it's a virtual storage appliance, it's a VSA, and it was probably one of the first of its type, apart from just running Linux and then running Open Filer in Linux, it was the yeah. first kind of appliance from a recognized storage vendor you could download, which looked and felt like the real physical storage, the real deal, and nobody would know that it was actually a virtual appliance in most cases. But um, anyway, I'm yakking on. Um, what made you choose a virtual storage appliance and were you not worried about performance not being so good because it's a virtual appliance?
1: Yeah, so there's a bit of history to this. Um, so I should maybe explain from the start and then it perhaps will make a bit more sense. sense. Okay. Um, so the firm I work for um, has never previously had shared storage in the form of a SAN. And when you look at the ticket price for a SAN, the annual support, the training, the investment for any SMB is, is quite significant. So back in the day when <laughs> I'm not that old really. <laughs> um, <laughs> back in the day though, when I was uh, starting out with server virtualization and when I was a lad back in the when day.
0: When I went a
1: lad, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um it was ESXi 3.5 and I was following Simon Seagraves Tech Ed site, starting off with a ML115 G five. Um so I got as far as putting uh, ESXi on a USB stick, booting it up, uh, showing it off to my colleagues who were rather disappointed um, because they were just staring back at a yellow screen. (laughs) Uh, So they didn't really get it at that stage. Uh, Anyway, so I used this lab box to play around, creating some VMs, quickly saw the potential, uh, sold the benefits to my boss, um, but we didn't have necessary budgets at that time for a full virtualization piece. But at the time, we were also speaking to a local DR and virtualization company about um, initially protecting our physical servers with um, double-take. Um, and the idea was to actually replicate uh, data from protected physical servers to um, a dedicated DL380 which had ESXi installed on it with lots of sass storage. So we called this a local recovery appliance. And this basically meant we could uh, get a same instance of a physical machine up as a VM within a few minutes. Mm. Um, so that gave us a lot of confidence. And I managed to do quite a few major things for me at that time, using uh, doing like an AD cross forest domain migration. And the other idea of using the DL380 of the target was um, to actually put left-hand VSA onto it and actually replicate the physical uh, software onto it which meant we could actually snapshot from the actual left hand to another left hand off-site so that's kind of how it started Mm. Um, and then quite quickly this local recovery appliance soon had lots of production VMs on it Um, so it was made this decision then to actually go out and buy another two DL380s with some more local SAS disks with some more VSAs running on them and a vCenter license to boot and all of a sudden we had network RAID 10 across multiple hosts using local storage and that's without the need to buy a SAN and that's pretty much where we are now.
0: I think what's interesting about that is if you looked at the the left hand uh, before the HP acquisition of course um, what it was was a HP box if you took the bezel off that said left hand yeah. on the back of that there was a a HP uh, server with the local storage. So, why not go physical? What was the benefit of having a virtual appliance sat on um, HP hardware using HP desks? Why not go native, so to speak? <laughs> I don't mean you know get naked and run around with the you know in Africa, but I mean go native, go native hardware. What what did the virtual appliance offer?
1: Um, just flexibility. Just because you could run it on pretty much any bit of tin really mm. that you could get you know ESXi on so i guess
0: i mean if you had not been a hp shop and you'd been a dell environment or even IBM, that vsa mm. would have worked whereas i think at the time left hand had a deal obviously with hp and they changed the bezel and off it went out the door um, yeah. so i mean if you if you didn't have a relationship with hp or you wanted to have a bit more flexibility were you, were you not worried about the performance? I guess you've obviously burnt it in and tested it, but a lot of people would say, oh, virtual appliance, oh, what about the performance, what about the IOPS? It's gotta go through a hypervisor, yada yada." Uh, were you not worried about the IOPS?
1: Um, to, to be honest, no, because we'd been running it as a test case with some VMs on it, and it's just, it was actually running much faster anyway than all the physical tin. So, really, it just came, came, came quite naturally, really. It was just, well, there's not too much latency. Um, it, it just seems to work for us at this stage. Maybe in you know next year we might have to look at something else. But I tell you what's just funny. Works.
0: What's funny about that is I've heard the same thing said about virtual machines that people early adopters of virtualization, Oh, we've actually found the virtual machine is faster than some of our physical servers, and that's not because the VM is so well written. It's because their old servers are really old, and they did just a new hardware purchase for these latest servers, which once they've got VMs are running on them, the actual CPU cycles per second or whatever is actually better than their old kit, which I always thought was quite ironic because there was always that assumption back in 2004, 2005, that VMs would be less performant than any physical box. So to have customers going, actually our VMs are quicker than our old physical servers, it was like, yes, yes. Because in terms of application owners being skeptical, it's like, get a VM and your performance will improve, not degrade. I mean, you can't really sell anything better than that than you actually say by improving, introducing the software performance will be better. But the real source of that performance improvement wasn't the virtualization layer, it was the new kit they bought. But you know, if they think it's faster because it's VMware there, we won't upset that kind of perception of what's going on, you know, so. I I must admit, I sometimes think about going back to a a home lab, it's something I'm thinking about even now. And I'm looking at um, these Synology boxes with uh, solid state drives, mainly because they've got Vi on them. So you know, when you do a copying, there's no up and downstream from the host. But of course, what I lose if I go to a home lab is my access to my two NetApp boxes and my two Ecologics boxes. But I'm wondering now, if I ran uh, a a virtual appliance like NetApp or the VSA left hand and it's been stored on one of those Synology boxes that's SSD. Where Where is the bottleneck? Probably the bottleneck is going to be the CPU of the Synology box on my network. It's certainly not going to be in the unit with the solid state. So I kind of want my cake and eat it. I want all the enterprise features that you get with an enterprise array, but I want to run that on cheapest chips, hardware and not have a co-location fee to pay but i must say the main reason i want to go back to a home lab is me and carmel are thinking of moving to a more rural location and my my colo is going to be an hour away drive and i don't know what the bandwidth is going to be like in this rural location so if the kit's down the corridor in the spare bedroom i've got the physical access and i don't experience any network latency is what i'm thinking of but Probably going off the point, but do you, do you get my point? Have you ever been tempted to use a VSA-like software in your home lab to get enterprise features?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's all in the community really. There's great blog posts everywhere. and I'm, um, I'm a really lazy person, because I really should perhaps start doing some blogs, but um, everybody else just seems to be so much better. Perhaps I need to uh, just drop that and just get on with it. but. Uh, yeah, I mean, same, same on Twitter as well. Um, people updating. Um, there was uh, who was it the other day? Um, Simon um, Gallagher. Mm-hmm. I think he's just got rid of his IX2, IX4 yeah. even. Um, so that's kind of old kit now, and he's got. Got some nice shiny new stuff. People are doing some really good things. And perhaps, I think he's
0: gone uh, down the route of next emptier, hasn't he, for his yeah. storage now. I mean, what out of curiosity, what do you use for your storage in your home lab? I take it you have one. Do you use the VSA? They're,
1: yeah, they're, they're just um, they're started this at the minute. Um, I'm in the stage of getting some money down and, and actually making it a little bit more of a, a pimping machine. Yeah, uh, so
0: I'm kind of holding off because um, HP have just brought out their new microservers, the Gen 8 ones. Yeah. which officially now supports 16 gig. They used to only support 8 gig, but if you put in the special Kingston memory that Simon Seagrave sourced, you can yeah, yeah. get 16 gig. For me, the turning point is if I could get a box like that, uh, a microserver, on 32 gig, it would have more memory than most of my servers in the colo, and it's like $200, odd $300 plus the memory.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're really nice. Yeah, I've yeah. got a couple.
0: Well, I, I, I always work on the calculation that if I leave the colo, the home lab will pay for itself in unpaid colo fees. So within like six months, what I would have, I want to use a swear word, what I would have wasted paying colo key, colocation fees, I've recouped on having a home lab. And then it ends up being a nil cost because, well, if I hadn't had this, I would have been paying the 850 odd quid a month I pay for a colo fees but the trouble I always find with leaving the colo is when a new version of SRM comes along what do I do for replication um, I think things are a little bit better now NetApp have got their VSA out, and EMC have had a version of the VNX out for a while because yeah. there's no fibre channel to the VM for any fibre channel replication bag maybe we're getting to the stage where I don't really care whether it's iSCSI or whether it's fibre channel or whether it's Dell, or whether it, as long as it just replicates. Once I'm into SRM, how that replication takes place, well, you know, you don't really see it. It's just there at the end of the day, so maybe I shouldn't get so uppity. I guess it's because previous editions of that book had, how to set up replication with its left hand, how to set up replication with net hand, how and of course it always changes, new arrays and new software front ends. so I want to kind of keep that going. You know. Anyway, I'm banging on about my own issues so uh, we've got two other topics to sort of talk about before we uh, wrap up Um, and I'm gonna shut up and let you have the floor it's my main problem I don't let my chin wag you speak virtual vmugs and recording of vmugs and live streaming of vmugs are they a good idea should they be done what's the advantages and disadvantages of doing it have you got some opinions on that
1: yeah I mean everyone's got their own opinion For me personally, I've been attending BMUGs and other technology user groups um, for several years now. And um, firstly, I can't highly recommend them enough for people to go to one. If they've not gone to one, they really should do. I always speak to at least one person again afterwards. Um, So it's like a new new friend, if you like, Um, someone to either confide in, talk about stuff and that kind of thing. for me, it's really difficult uh, where I work because I haven't got anybody else to bounce ideas off. I'm in a small team, um, so after reading blogs, user groups definitely the next best thing to in answers. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to actually be on the committee for the Leeds Virtual Machine User Group, and the hardest part is actually getting people there. So there's different ways to actually get people there and raise awareness, but. What I'd like to try and do is perhaps do record a couple of sessions next time and have a little snippet or a show reel. Um, I put it on, you know, YouTube. This is on the what website. you're missing type thing. Well, yeah, just kind of, you know, that people are. I don't know. It's whether it's in the IT industry. You know, they're not they're not that chatty really. You know, you're an exception to that rule. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a polite way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, virtual, you know, virtual appearances as well. I definitely think it's worth a for crack out. Um, but you're going to be reliant on a few technical cogs, which people would kind of stay clear of. Um, so reliable thought, internet.
0: Have you thought about how you might record? I mean, if you're recording them to be uploaded later, you don't need reliable internet. You do if you're streaming, of course, and that costs yeah. money at a venue. But have you thought about how you might capture a presenter's session? How you might go? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I give quite a bit of thought to this recently. Um, so generally, the, the sessions have slides, so that's kind of like an easy one you can record with WebEx. It's a nice inbuilt feature for that sort of thing. Um, but before I started actually in IT, my roots are in sound recording and all microphone right. techniques. So, so for me, hence the microphone. So for <laughs> me, it's uh, really important that the either the virtual attendees or the virtual presenter can all hear each other and i think the video in of the actual room is less important um but i've compiled a bit of a kit list i've got bits to show people for them to have a little uh think about so um first thing you're gonna have is your microphone and it's either going to be the presenter that you can actually pick up or the attendees so you've got your typical lapel radio mic mm-hmm. nice and easy your attendees, you're just going to have a standard kind of dynamic. It can be with wire, without a wire. I mean, how um,
0: expensive is this sort of kit
1: now? Well, you know, you can you can have a borrow off friends if you've if you've got them. Uh, perhaps <laughs> someone at work's got them, or it's it's actually better to buy rather than to rent because the rental companies will charge you an arm and leg. Um, I think after maybe three three events, it probably pays for itself. Mm. Um. So after you've got your audio from the microphone, you then want to do a preamp on it. So that's we're going to be a mixing desk. So it can be a small mixing desk, such as like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a Soundcraft mixing desk, and that's actually got four microphone inputs. So that gives you a little bit of flexibility as to what you want to plug into it. So if you didn't have a mixing desk, you could have a... Um, this is a Marantz recorder. It's got two channels or stereo input. Mm-hmm. So maybe perhaps when you're doing your next chinwags on the road, you could potentially use one of those.
0: <laughs> I'm much more lo-fi than that. I did look at lapel mics for doing chinwags at VMworld. Um, but in the end, I went not because once you've got lapel mics, you've got batteries. Once you've got batteries, you've got to keep them charged. With the, yeah. with the kind of cheap and cheerful wired one, They've got like a little like hearing aid battery that you screw into them, and you can buy those from Walmart or any like kind of shop. And you just carry a couple in your kit bag. The yeah, hardest yeah. thing is remember to turn the damn things on when you off when you're done with them, because you switch some on for recording. Then you get distracted. By the afternoon, they can be as flat as a pancake, and you don't yeah, even realize. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. I have recorded a couple of uh, mini wags at VMworld where they've mainly been. They haven't switched on the mics. <laughs> yeah, 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 But fortunately, they're only 10 minutes long. So if you get like, oh, I screwed up, you just jump the video and go on to the next guest. you know.
1: So you really need someone that's actually going to monitor the sound levels, I think is what we're getting out of that as well. Mm-hmm. So whatever's coming into this little desk, someone needs to be monitoring it. Um, the actual output of the desk is going to be at line level. And so most laptops don't have line inputs. Um, so you're going to need a little sound card. And this is a little Behringer usb sound card which has also got a nice little headphone monitor on it mm. so that can be recording y- your sound at the same time mm-hmm. so you can have a beam that across the world or you can just do it local um there's other things you can have as well um additionally uh, nice to have,s uh you can have a, a shotgun microphone um <laughs> yeah don't load them with bullets or anything like that
0: you sometimes get those shotgun mounted microphones on camcorders don't you like yeah sort of like a long tube that sort of clips on top I, I i looked at the camcorder route for a while for going to VMWorld and recording sessions at VMWorld, which is naughty but i had a go trying to do it even took a tripod with me set up the tripod yeah, yeah. Pointed at the presenters and like nobody came up from VM all the You know, no recordings, no recordings. The trouble I found was it is very difficult to find a, a camcorder with good battery life that actually would take a decent mic input. So many yeah. of the camcorders have the inbuilt mics, which is fine if you're recording friends at yeah. close quarters, but if you're recording at a distance, you really need yeah. some, something that's directional. And then then you're talking camcorders which are like a grand and a half, megabus.
1: It's, it's not gonna happen um, for an hour budget. So that's why you really want a separate audio device that's so gonna record it. And then as long as you've got like a, have someone clapping, that's like your clapperboards, you, clap aboard, you mm. can actually match up the video and the audio afterwards. So you get rid of the dirty audio and put in the clean audio.
0: Two thoughts I had about this. One idea I had was why not just use Camtasia or ScreenFlow on the actual laptop that you're beaming from? Yeah, yeah, that's lapel good. Idea. And then you hit record, and the feed from the lapel mic goes to the Camtasia, and you end up with a video of that presentation. I noticed uh, in the Manchester user group, they actually have an AV system, you know, with the uh, two, you know, those kind of things that you'd see in a, in a pub or a bar, yeah, or yeah. Some, like a PA system. And the mixing yeah. desk is already there. Well, all they would have to do is, you know, um, put a screen recorder on and they're there, but not everybody has that. I guess there's yeah. another side of this, which is the worry about recording VMUGs is, if everybody knows it's going to be recorded or you can watch live from a web page, does that mean they stop going? Do you cannibalize yeah. your own attendees? What do you think yeah. of that suggestion?
1: Um, I don't think it will. Um, I think people go because they actually want to speak to people. And meet um, people. I meet people and get answers to problems, you're not going to get that from watching a, a video. Mm. It's A video is really going to in, maybe to inspire you to go and have a look at something or try and find out about something, perhaps give you a quick answer, but really the, the value is really having that in-depth conversation with someone, especially when it's something new. Mm.
0: Maybe the power of this is in the opposite direction, rather than offering this facility to members, you offer the facility to speakers. I've presented twice in Manitoba, Canada, but I've never been to Manitoba in my life. And it's just being done through the power of WebEx. Um, When I do these events in the US, which I don't do as many as I used to, obviously there's a traveling time. Uh, It takes at least a day to get to the event, a day to do the event and a day to get back. It's three days to potentially speak 45 minutes maybe twice if you have two sessions and yes there's the interaction with people in the gaps in between but you know sometimes you know you don't meet that many people although people don't come up to you after a session but uh, i think maybe for vmugs to get the rock stars it's quite difficult to get duncan epping or alan Renouf to come to europe or whatever or come to the u.s but if the time zones are done right, you could potentially, and it's 45 minutes on a Webex is nothing to me, but three days to get to an event and back, it's like, mm, my boss will sign off on me to do one of those trips a month, but not two, three, four, five. But I could be potentially speaking out loads of VMugs across the US and in Europe, so long yeah. as we did it virtually rather than me having to have a physical presence. But is there something lost once you're on a webcam and it's just a PowerPoint and not you in the audience is the question I asked myself. Yeah,
1: well, it, it does. Um, but, you know, if that's just one in the day and there's lots of different sessions, mm. I think that's fine, as long as it's not overkill. and People should just have a go at the end of the day.
0: Anyway, what they had set up, I forget how they actually did the logistics. They actually had two laptops, one um, connected to the Beamer to the projector so they can see it. And then another laptop pointed at the audience so mm. I could see my audience and I could wave at them and I could see them waving back in Manitoba, which was kind of funny. The last one I did was was, was with David Davis. Uh, so you had three different time zones. We all agreed to meet at a certain point and then we had I had a discussion with David and there was questions from the floor. The only issue I had with the first one was with lag so I was hitting the space bar in the UK to protect the pre- um, pre- um, to progress the presentation, and it would change instantaneously on my screen. But there was at least a three or four minute lag before that keystroke arrived in Manitoba. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I needed I needed those reverse laptops so I could go, I could think that I'm going to move on to the next slide hit the space bar, <laughs> wait for it to change in Canada, and then so, and sl- smoothly move on to the next point. Without being able to see the Beamer in Manitoba, I would have been completely out of sync with what I was saying and the PowerPoint slides, which I wonder how often that happens just with WebEx generally. Unless you upload the PowerPoint, preload it into the WebEx environment, which I think is meant to be a bit quicker, Um if it's really sharing my screen, sharing my desktop, you're at the mercies of round trips and latencies at that point. But
1: I think you different. just have to keep it simple uh, if you are going to have a starting point at it.
0: Mm. You look like you've got a lot of equipment, and I think that's what some people might be a bit, you know, lapels, wireless mics, mixing desks. Like I know you're a sound engineer, so you're like, yeah, let's plug it all in and make it work. But I was looking at this thing and how can we do it as simply as cheaply, as budget as possible. yeah. Um, but I think you might be right. There is something there is something in the, we have user groups, but you can't attend virtually. But they're about virtualization. Yeah. I've often said that about VMworld, that there should be more online presence during VMworld of sessions for people who can't attend. And sometimes the answer that's come back when I was an independent is, if we opened up VMworld to be an open thing that anybody could attend online, would people still then come to the event? But uh, my rejoinder, like yours, was it isn't just about seeing some sessions. It's about the people and the the connections you make. Speaking of which, you're into virtualization and you work at a a law firm. Do you know Stu McHugh at all?
1: I do, indeed, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, if you didn't,
0: I would hook you up because there's another virtualization dude in the UK who works at a law firm. So do you guys chat to each other frequently or...?
1: Um, it's it's been the odds the odd conversation uh, over the email to be honest uh, I do listen to the podcast as well the uh, B news uh, so uh yeah
0: there must be a way of doing that peer I know we have all these sigs and stuff like that in the v mugs special interest groups but I don't know how many people actually sign up for them and because they're not what you want to do is identify you but somewhere else. <laughs> You know, yeah,
1: this I mean for me, there's actually a lot of law firms where well, where, where I'm based at the minute, and all right, we okay. all tend to know each other. Yeah, um, I guess
0: in the UK you do get well, I guess anywhere in the in the world you get legal quarters, don't you, which are often near the yeah. courts, and I guess the yeah. bars and everything around there is full of IT people going, oh no, I can't believe this has just happened, you know. So I guess there is a community there already that's local. Anyway, I we've think all got we, the same problems yeah, I guess we need to wrap this up we've got one more last question to do but we'll try and do it in like two minutes which is selling to the business do we have to as technical people learn how to sell what we do do we need to learn to sell in order to get a product signed off and get a purchase order or is it about selling a concept and if we're not naturally sales people how do we learn to be salesperson And this is your idea about selling to the business, but I'm just kind of couching it in a couple of terms. Yeah, so
1: the the angle I'm coming from is that it's getting harder and harder every year to get approval for new IT-related purchases, um, especially when um, it's not a nice, shiny piece of hardware to show after you, you've bought something, like, like a software license, for instance. So yeah, it's coming around to that software-defined data center, if you want, mm-hmm. um, and... I think the mindset perhaps needs to change um, from calling it an IT purchase to calling it a business purchase. Um, we tend to get a bit more traction on that. Um, most of the people probably listening now are, are techies or they have been techies and they mm-hmm. fix stuff. So, techies don't tend to have soft skills or language uh, to talk to the stakeholders of the company to you know go out and buy the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I think it's like really important for everyone to develop alongside learning about latest and greatest tech, um, how to actually talk to the business. Now I probably count myself quite lucky at the minute because um, all of a sudden the firm are now seeing the benefit of knowledgeable Duncan, um, they're seeing me as this guy that's won this $20,000 check off VMware and um, they're using me to actually sell professional services now. So. I would uh, consider myself as a, a trainee salesperson, if you like, uh, almost slightly uh, like a, a di- diversifying uh, t- to myself as a walking, talking Swiss Army knife, if you want.
0: So, is that <laughs> IT services to other legal firms that
1: they want to do that? I s- some uh, of our um, seminars are based on IT and innovation, and we, we did one recently on the Raspberry Pi. Um, and I showed how we could use the Raspberry Pi as a thin client. Mm. Connect it up to View, connect it up to, to ZenApp. Um, all of a sudden, you don't actually need to go out and buy a PC or a thin client. You could just buy a Raspberry Pi for 40 pounds, mm. um, and that's just kind of got people thinking. And it's like a, it's almost like a different angle that they've not seen before. Well, this is a bit different. These guys seem to know what they're talking about, so. That's how I'm kind of getting used at the minute uh, as, a, as a sales weapon, if you'd like.
0: Out of curiosity, not to go off the point a little bit, but the Raspberry Pi as a, a view client, what OS do you put on it?
1: Um, so well, it's like a Linux um, deployment. You just you download it off. It's like a Raspberry Pi forum site. Um, it just flashes an SD card. And um, the particular build I've got has actually got a VWorkspace um, build on there as well, and an RDP client. So, it pretty much covers everything off, to be honest. Mm.
0: And uh, I, I mean, I must admit, I've only really used the Windows client, the HTML5 client, uh, and the uh, Mac client. I, I I assumed we have a, a Linux client, but I have no idea what it's what it's like. Was that? small enough relatively to get it onto that linux distribution or was it a um, kind of pre-build
1: it's it's pre-built um i've not got time for building that sort of thing to be honest <laughs> nobody has there's it's, lots of uh, there's lots of interesting people out there that like doing that which is great um
0: well i guess simon long i noticed simon long started to do some stuff on on raspberry pi and i knew why he'd be looking at that for the yeah, same reason yeah. that you've talked about i mean i've not Purchased one. I got hold of one. Yeah, I just haven't got round to doing it. I might do at uh, some yeah. stage, but it's just. When not, you
1: can, you can put other things X-Men. on there as well. There's um, there's one for AirPlay, so you, you can just you, know, you boot it up with like a Xbox Media Center on there, um, turn on AirPlay mode. You can whack it in a, a meeting room, and all of a sudden you've got AirPlay without having to buy yeah you know, your Apple TV for hundred quid. What was the
0: The um, connections on the Raspberry Pi, is that HDMI or is that SVGA? Yeah, it's HDMI. Right, okay. Just thinking about that. Anyway, okay. So uh, what I think is interesting out of all those things is that you decided that we should talk about business purchase rather than IT purchase. Yeah. The reason I'm into that is as a former student of literature and the fine arts, I'm interested in the language that we use to talk about stuff. And how if we change our language, although the content of what we're saying is the same, by using different words, the organization reacts differently to that. And the one I came up with is uh, recently is we should stop talking about DR because DR is associated with a negative event, disaster, yeah. which you hope never happens. And it's associated with an expensive insurance policy, which you never get to claim on. And I've been saying for a while, maybe we need to drop this term at all and talk about site availability is the term that we need. Because it, uh, this stretch clustering stuff has taken off as you know people think it's really sexy. It's quite expensive and technologically challenging. But somehow site availability and active, active sites is what people want to talk about. They don't want to talk about DR and business continuity. That's just seen as a money pet. But we are actually talking about the same thing, redundancy and resiliency, that protects you from a site failure. But maybe we just need to use different words. So I wonder what is it about the word business purchase that somehow a management layer responds to in a way that, if you say IT purchase they just go, no, we're not having any of that.
1: It's historical, isn't it? IT has always been this kind of- uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, It's getting people to think differently about it now. And things are definitely changing. Um, If you can actually show people things working or how they can save some money, um, physically put it in front of them and show them, then that tends to go a lot better than writing a a big report and sending that off that people are probably not going to read.
0: I mean, I think we've tried it in the past with total cost of ownership and return on investment studies to show, yeah, there's this monumental bill that you'll have to pay to acquire, but over a three or four year period, it all pays back, but... The trouble with those REO and uh, TCO studies is that there isn't a software vendor on the planet that doesn't have one that demonstrates their software delivers that. A year ago, I heard a software vendor say that their software has a high TCO. And I thought, how funny is that, that the term TCO has become so abused in our industry that he's actually got it the wrong way around. What you want is a low total cost of ownership, not a high one. <laughs> but it was like, oh, we've got a high TCO. And I was like, no, 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 no. You're getting this the wrong way around. You know? But it just goes to show how when a term like that becomes so abused and misused, it then doesn't have any meaning anymore. And I, yeah, I like yeah. the idea of using new words because it, it, it requires people to think about the thing in a different way. And maybe business purchase in three years' time will be as redundant, and you'll have to think of a new Word buzzword to engage management. Yeah,
1: I mean, it happens all the time, doesn't it? And cloud is obviously uh, not very. Hmm.
0: Well, it's become yeah. an abused, misused, reused, overused word that I think it's lost its currency or lost yeah. some of its currency. It's no surprise that we've had to coin this thing called the software-defined something. Yeah. Who's yeah. to say in three or four years' time when everybody's got software-defined? You know, you know, software-defined cups, software-defined everything then we'll have to find a new word to talk about this to the to business people. But I think yeah. what's interesting is admitting to ourselves that whether you like it or not, if you're in a technical position, doing sales and being able to speak to the business in a way that it understands rather than technical terms is part of part of doing work nowadays, whether you like it or not.
1: Yeah, I don't think people get that at this stage. I'm certainly learning the ropes uh, as we speak, if you like.
0: Well, anyway, um, thank you very much for your uh, time. I I will link to the the video of, of uh, Duncan talking about his SMB stuff. Well, or Don't hits. don't look at the
1: eyebrows too much. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind I'll, of quite expressive. I'll send
0: I'll send some hits over to that little website called VMware.com. Whoever they are, you know, from the great yeah. Mike Joke, joke, joke. <laughs> but thank you very much for being on the Chimwag. It's been a, a pleasure. Thanks.